Can we pray and ask the Lord to come and meet us this morning as we open his word? Lord, we just praise you for your goodness. Uh, we thank you for your grace and kindness. Um, would you draw near? Would you help us as we open your word to behold wondrous things in your law? Lord, we, we desperately need to hear your voice today. So I pray you would guide us, you would direct us, you would encourage us, you would instruct us. And by your spirit, would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen. And a couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to travel down to Florida. And um, I, I met with a, a retired seminary professor. Uh, by all accounts, this man had had an extremely successful career. He had a great reputation in the theological world. He had taught for over 40 years at a seminary level. Obviously, because of that, he had a number of academic degrees behind his name. In fact, he was a published author and had, had had several successful books. And I asked him, as we're sitting there in the car today, together, uh, just what I thought was a rather innocuous question. I said, hey man, how's retirement treating you? I got a rather surprising answer, to be honest. He looked back at me and he said, honestly, Ryan, I hate it. I hate it. So here we are with this beautiful Florida weather. You know, it's warm out. The sun is shining. And he says, I hate it. And then he followed up with this. I just don't know what to do with myself. I can't seem to find my legs. Some of you are like, that man is crazy. I work every day to get to retirement. But can't you all identify to some degree? That is, there are some things, some statuses, if you will, about us that are so near and dear to our heart that if you took that away from us, we kind of wouldn't know who we were anymore. It would be a struggle for us to have a real sense of reality and what we're supposed to do with our life if those things were ripped away from us. When this man went from professor to retire, he had a hard time dealing with the change. For some of us, it might not be that, but maybe it's your upbringing. You're a Jones. Not all of you, just the Joneses are Joneses, but you know what I mean. Insert your last name. You're a Southerner. You're from DeKalb. You're from the North. You don't live here in Atlanta. And that, that part of you is so near and dear to you that, that it, it's a sense of your identity. I, I remember a conversation with my sister a couple years ago. Um, her name is Megan Jennifer McCammock. And she says, you know what? Several times I have thought about changing my middle name to McCammock. She got married and her last name is now Hale. She's like, I, I think I should be Megan McCammock Hale. Because Jennifer doesn't really have any sense of identity to me, but McCammock means something to me. You, you see what I mean by that? Like, is there something about your upbringing, your family, your past, where you're from, that causes you to have a sense of identity in that? For others, it's a passion you have. Maybe you're a mother. Maybe you're an artist or an athlete, an entrepreneur, an intellectual, or a dreamer. When you think of yourself, these ideas stand front and center. And if it wasn't part of your life, you'd have a hard time knowing who you were. Perhaps you find a great deal of identity in your career. 
You're an educator or a salesperson, a medical professional, or a student. FYI, you can't be a student forever. That's not a career. Just so you know, some of you are trying to make it a career. It's not a career. There was a short period of time um, in my life. I remember when we were in Chicago, I've been a pastor for, I'm pushing 20 years now. I'm getting close to that number. And when we moved from Chicago down here to Atlanta, there was about two months when I wasn't a pastor. And I remember kind of thinking about that and I was like, man, I'm not sure I like that very much. Like it's just kind of wrapped up in who I am. For you, maybe it's a relationship with the significant others, your spouse, your fiance, your boyfriend and girlfriend. And that's, that's, it's very easy to see today now because of social media, right? You have this little even tab that says relationship what? Status. And you know where you're at on that. Whatever your particular status du jour, it can be very tempting to find our identity in our life circumstances or situations. I'm not saying that that's all wrong. I'm not saying that that's sinful. But I do want to talk about that because as is often the case, the Bible points us to a better way of finding our identity. It points us to the work of Jesus that we would find who we are fundamentally, our sense of value, our sense of worth, our sense of identity in not what others say about us, not in what we do, but fundamentally in who we are because of what the Lord says we are. So that's really my point this morning and where I'm going. It's simply this. We must find our identity in our relationship with Christ. Say, well, I hear you, but how are we supposed to do that? I mean, we live in this world where it seems like everybody is screaming at me to find my identity in something else. So people say things like this to singles. Well, don't you want to get married? Or they say something like this when you're starting out in your career or when you've had a couple of setbacks. I thought you'd be further along than you are right now. Or maybe you're, you're not identified as a person. Oh, you're Joe's wife or Susie's husband. Or what are some, Brittany's mom, right? Like you get identified by not who you are, but your relationship to someone else. These are not necessarily bad things. But what we need to do is say primarily, fundamentally, I find my identity not in what I do, not in my relationship to other people, but fundamentally in my relationship to Christ. So in spite of all of these voices going on, Paul wisely counsels us how to find our identity in who he says we are. And in this passage, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he identifies what I would call three identity-sustaining truths. So three things that you need to believe about your identity no matter what else is going on in your life. So buckle up. Let's go through these together. Number one, it's simply this. God is responsible for your status. After discussing singleness and marriages in the early part of chapter 7, in this section, Paul describes an even wider range of life circumstances. Look at verse 18 of chapter 7. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Skip down to verse 21. Were you a bond servant when called? 
Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Then Paul summarizes this section with verse number 24. Look at it very carefully. This is the key verse in this section. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. Seems that Paul is not overly concerned with the individual's upward mobility, markability of skills, ability to attract a spouse, or even educational credentials. If I could paraphrase Paul's thought, it seems to be, don't get too worried about improving your status. You can please God right where you are. I think that's what Paul is getting at in this passage. Hey, don't be overly concerned with moving up the corporate ladder. You can please God right where you're at. This is tremendously good news when you stop and think about it for us. But it requires a little unpacking. First, let me say that I don't think this passage that Paul is telling us to refuse the promotion. So if your boss offers you a promotion tomorrow, I don't think Paul's advice to you would be like, just turn it down flat. It doesn't mean that you should call off the engagement like hand in your rings right now. That's not what Paul is saying. With, it doesn't mean that you should withdraw from grad school or go home and take all your money out of the 401k. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. What I think he is doing is calling us to put all of these things in proper perspective. He's not saying throw them out the window. He's not saying don't worry about your status whatsoever. He is saying put your status in the proper perspective. Listen. There is a common tendency for us in our performance-driven American society to believe that we need to get certain things figured out before we can really start pleasing the Lord. You know what I'm talking about there? Like, if you really want to please God, you've got to have your ducks in a row first. So we think things like this. Once I get married, then I'll start studying the scripture. Then I'll get really serious about God's word. Or once I get that promotion... You know, once I get a little more income coming in, then I'll start honoring the Lord with my finances. Once I finish my degree, then I'll become a disciple maker. Once I get a little older, then I'll start taking leadership at church. But according to 1 Corinthians 7, you do not need to be in an ideal situation to please the Lord. That's the point there. Paul's saying, hey, look at your status. Are some of you in bad status situations? Are some of you in difficult status situations? Paul's saying, don't worry about it. Don't try to, don't, don't, don't get stuck there. It's not as if you don't have any freedom to move about, but that's not the main thing. No matter what season you find yourself in, you can please the Lord right then, right there. So what drove Paul to this conviction that your status your life situation, your circumstances in life were not the main things. How could he say that? Because really, let's be honest about it. Don't those th things feel like the main things oftentimes? Doesn't your job or your relationship with your significant other feel like the main thing in your life? And if that's not right, then man, nothing's right. So why would Paul go to such extent and basically say, hey, don't worry about these things primarily. You can still please God right where you're at. Look at verse 17 once again. Only let each person lead the life. Now follow this right here. That the Lord has assigned to him. 
Now notice the next phrase, two, and to which God has called him. In other words, Paul believed that your station in life had been assigned to you by the Lord himself. Whatever situation you find yourself in right now, who is ultimately responsible for that? According to the Apostle Paul, it's God himself. Now that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? When you begin to realize that God has you right where he wants you, it changes your perspective on reality. It means this. If you are single, at this moment, at this very moment, right now at 11, no, not 11, yes, 11.45 a.m. this Sunday morning, right at this current moment, who wants you to be single? Okay, that was not very enthusiastic at all. The Lord. If you are single, <laughs> that's good, Melissa. All right, yeah, yeah. If you are single right now, who wants you to be single? God. If you are married, okay, no, you better be careful on this one because your spouse is probably sitting next to you. If you are married at this very moment, who wants you to be married? If your career is thriving at this very moment, who wants your career to be thriving? If your career is struggling at this very moment, who wants your career to be struggling? If your body is healthy at this very moment, who wants your body to be healthy? And if you are sick at this very moment, who wants your body to be sick? Lord. Bad boy, thank you. That's good participation in the back. I appreciate that. Look, knowing that it is our Heavenly Father who ultimately appoints our stages in life should be a great source of comfort to us. The Lord wants you where you are. It is He who is responsible for the season in life where you find yourself. Why is this a comfort? Because He not only knows but he is committed to giving us what is best. That is the very nature of who God is. He is a good father, which means he is wise, he knows what's best for us, and he is kind, he gives us what is best for us. Look, listen to this statement very clearly. There are no wasted seasons for the child of God. None. There is no wasted season in your life. If we believe that our station in life comes to us from the hand of our loving Father, it transforms our perspective. Do you ever lament those years at your old job? Are you ever envious of your friends that are happily married? Does your unresolved family situation fill you with regret? Do you wish you could reverse a decision that seems to set you back? God doesn't. You are not stuck. You are not behind. You are not running late. You are not not on schedule. You are right where God wants you to be. Whatever your situation, you can please God today. I don't care what your past is. Where you are today, you can please God fully.
with whatever is going on. You can please God fully right now. Listen, no believer is a slave to a circumstance. Man, I'm so thankful for that. No believer is a slave to his circumstances. You, if you are a child of God, you can't be stuck. You can't be. Because ultimately, the situation in life comes to you from God himself. And it is a gift to you in this moment. Man, that transforms our identity, doesn't it? When we begin to say, I am not this or that. I am in the station in life that I find myself in because it comes to me from God himself. He is responsible for where I am. Number two, God is present in your status. He's not just responsible for your status. Like he puts you there and says like, all right, you better take care of that now. He's with you in the midst of it. Look back at verse number 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain. What's it say? Okay, let's try again. There let him remain. One more time. There let him remain. Now, let's be honest. Are there some statuses that are more pleasant than others? Yes or no? Absolutely. There is no, but, but, even though some statuses, some situations are more pleasant than others, there is no life situation in which God is not present. There is no such thing as a God forsaken place. There isn't. It just doesn't exist. The Lord is with you in whatever place you are at. There is no such thing as a God forsaken place. God never abandons his people no matter what situation or circumstances they may be facing. Here's how the psalmist puts it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle on the western limits, even there your hand will lead me, your light right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are a light to you. You can go nowhere, child of God, that God is not present with you. The good news for us is because there are times in our life when we can feel abandoned by the Lord. Don't you, don't you know that? Have there been seasons in your life where you feel abandoned? I'm not naive enough to think that there are not people in here this morning that feel abandoned by God. God, where are you? If you really love me, if you really cared about me, then this relationship would be going somewhere. Then this job wouldn't be such a nightmare. Then my health wouldn't be so bad. God, where are you? And in this passage, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, he's right here. He's with you. He's not saying that your situation is ideal. He's not saying that your situation doesn't hurt. But he does say that no matter what the situation is, I will be with you. When life is hard, it is easy to believe that God has abandoned us. 
but this simply is not the testimony of the scriptures. Listen to what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Hebrews verse chapter 13, verse number 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. Look, look church, listen to this and put your theological thinking caps on for just a moment. The presence of hardship does not imply the absence of God. Yes, yes, the Bible does not promote a Pollyanna view of life where everything is always hunky-dory. Floods are scary. Valleys are dark. Enemies are real. But if you have trusted in Jesus, God is present. He is with you. So to the single who longs to be married... the wife who longs for a child, to the divorcee who wonders what went wrong, to the widow whose heart is broken, to the employee who's been passed over, to the boss whose numbers are low, to the child who feels overlooked, and to the mom who feels underappreciated. Let me say, based on the authority of the Bible, God has not forgotten you. He is with you. He is with you. He is with you. Yes, your status in life may be challenging, but it came to you from the hand of God, and He is present with you in that sorrow, in that difficulty. And this is an important reminder for us to remember. Number three. God is flexible towards your status. Say, that's a weird point. Yes, it is weird, but let me unpack what I mean by that. Paul concludes chapter seven reminding us that there are unique advantages and disadvantages to both marriage and singleness. We dealt with this some last week, so I encourage you to go back and listen if you weren't here. But let me hit just some of the highlights of that. First, Paul reminds us that those who marry will need to be concerned with what he refers to as worldly troubles. This is a disadvantage of marriage in Paul's mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 28. Those who marry will have worldly troubles. On the other hand, those who remain single are freer to focus on their relationship with the Lord. Verse number 32 and verse number 35. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Then skip down. I say this for your own benefit, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul says one advantage of singleness is you don't have to worry about your spouse. You can worry more about God and pleasing him. 
Then Paul summarizes this. He is acknowledging that marriage is a good and appropriate way to satisfy sexual desire. So this is an advantage of marriage. Verse number 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed. Okay, you can unpack what you think that means. If his passions are strong, and if it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry. So basically Paul is saying, hey, man, if sexual desire is strong in your life, marry. It's fine. That's not wrong. That's not sinful. That's a good thing to do. Go ahead and go that direction. And finally, he concludes with kind of his personal opinion about all this. If Paul texts, it would be I-M-H-O, right? In my honest opinion, he would say this, verse number 38. So then, he who marries, his betrothed does well. Like, hey, it's fine. If you want to get married, great. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. In other words, in Paul's estimation, it's better to remain single than get married. But either way is fine. So what does that all teach us? I think the idea is that Paul is conveying that the Lord gives us a great deal of flexibility in this area. I mean, did you notice just like how undogmatic that passage was? He's like, well, if you want to do this, that's cool. And if you want to do this over here, that's cool as well. He's just kind of like, hey, God actually gives you a great deal of liberty in this area to go along what the Lord lays on your own personal heart. Indeed, he emphasizes that a bunch of times in here. Look at verse 28 again. But if you marry, you have not sinned. If a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So is it sinful to get married? Yes or no? No. Then verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon anyone. What is he saying? This is not like a command. I'm not laying restraint upon you. Like do what you feel is best to do. And then verse number 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. In other words, the Lord is saying, hey, do what you want. Like, really, I, I don't care. <laughs> like, as long as you're trying to please me with getting married or being single, it's cool. Whichever one you want to do, as long as you're trying to please me first and foremost of all, marriage is good, you do well. Singleness is good, you do well if you do that. I think the principle is that God is far less concerned about what your status in than about how, what your status is than about how you leverage that status for his glory. Let me explain that just a little bit. This has tremendous practical implications. If you feel led to pursue marriage, you should. If you feel content in your singleness, then feel free. To, feel free. I'm really having trouble with my tongue right now. <laughs> okay, go again. If you feel content in your singleness, then feel free to remain that way. If God calls you to go overseas, go. If God leads you to stay, stay. If you have a desire to go to law school, enroll. If you want to drive a truck, get rolling. Uh -uh. That was supposed to be funny. All right. If you're drawn to investments, do your research and put money in the stock market. If you love serving, start volunteering. Like, it's just like, do what you want. God has flexibility about this. There is no one-size-fits-all approach to living a life that honors God. Sometimes we get the notion that we have to magically find God's will for our lives. 
You know, you ever start talking about that? I need to find God's will. I'm going to go climb a mountain and become a Sherpa and sit up there and meditate for many years and then I will know God's will. The reality is, is that God more concerned that we take whatever opportunities he puts in front of our path and use them for his glory. God's not trying to hide his will from you, friends. He's trying to say, all these opportunities that I put in front of you, you walk through them as you want. Should I pick the blue car or the red car? Pick the one you want. There's no more godly color. Just pick it. Do what you want if you're trying to honor God with your decisions. The Bible says it this way. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. The caveat is simply this. Whatever you're doing, do it for God. Or 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Look, what you do is less important than how you do it. I don't know what season of life you're in right now, but rather being focused on changing your status, your emphasis should be on being the most God-exalting, single, married, employee, employer, student, entrepreneur, renter, newlywed, grandparent, homeowner, teenager, fill it all in that you can be. Now, I'm not saying that you don't have freedom to pursue opportunities. That's what I just said. But I'm saying don't get fixated on those things. Because no matter what you are in right now, right here, no matter how life is going right now, right here, God's like, I'm not as concerned about what you are doing, so long as it's pleasing to me, but how you are doing that thing. If you are single, Love Jesus in your singleness as much as you possibly can. Just burn brightly as a single that loves God. If you're married, be the best husband or wife to the glory of God that you can possibly be. If you're a boss, treat your employees with grace and kindness and truth and exalt Jesus in the way that you treat other people. If you're an employee, be the best employee at the company, not just so you can climb the corporate ladder, but so that you exude the character of Christ in everything that you do. It doesn't matter so much what you are doing, but how you do it. That's what Paul is saying. It's like, man, it, if you were single when you were called to be a Christian, man, don't worry about that. If you're married, don't worry about that. If you're Jewish, don't worry about that. If you're Gentile, don't worry about it. It's well and good to look for opportunities, but most important in all of that, look for opportunities to please God, no matter where you find yourself in life. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said it this way. If God calls you to be a minister, don't stoop to become a king. But I think you could rightly insert a wide varieties of callings in there. If God calls you to be single, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to be married, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to cook fries at McDonald's, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to study medicine, don't stoop to be a king. If God calls you to sell the world, don't stoop to be a king. 
If God calls you to set up pipe and drape or go serve with the kids, don't stoop to be a king. There are a thousand, yay, 10,000 different ways that we can please God. And he's like, man, I'm not super concerned about what it is you are doing. I'm more concerned about how you are leveraging the opportunities that I have put in your life to make me look great. We don't need, I don't know, 150 preachers at Gospel Hope. Well, you can barely deal with two. But we do need lots of people in all kinds of different seasons and walks of life, in all kinds of different professions and generational stages. We need people of all sorts to walk out their faith and be salt and light where God has called them to be, leveraging the opportunities that you have, that I don't have, that Pastor Rod doesn't have, to make Jesus look great in our city, in our nation, and around the world. God is flexible toward your status in life. So don't get all bent out of shape because life isn't just like you drew it up. God has a plan for you right where you are at. In this whole conversation, Paul is not saying that your status is irrelevant. Don't hear me saying that. He is saying though that your status is secondary. It's not the most important thing about you. A.W. Tozer said, Uh, The most important thing about a human being is what they think about God. And I think that's the reality. Like, we need to put all of these things in their proper perspective. Of course it matters if you're married or single or a boss or an employee or a parent or a child or young or seasoned. See what I did there? I didn't say the O word. But these are not your fundamental source of identity. Here's how Paul puts it over in the book of Colossians. Listen carefully to Paul's words there. Here, and he's speaking about in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's an amazing truth when you stop and think about it. Paul is not saying that there is no such thing as a Jewish person or a non-Jewish person. That's not what he's saying. If Paul were here at Gospel Hope, he would not be saying, like, black people aren't black people and white people aren't white people. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, fundamentally, we are not defined by our blackness or whiteness or brownness or anything in between. Fundamentally, If you have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ, Christ is all, he's everything, and he's in all. He is everything to every one of us. Look, look, let let me do it this way. Come on, Lynn, come on, come on up here. I need you, I need you, I need you. Who else am I gonna get? Chipper, come on, Chipper. Okay, we're gonna use some words to describe these folks here. Nice words, nice ones we're going to use. Okay, all right. So Chipper is a man. That's good. We're starting out well, yeah. Lynn is a woman. Yes. Chipper is white. Lynn is, did somebody say very? Okay, so Lynn is black. Lynn has a daughter over there, which makes her a 
Chipper has a brood somewhere around here, which makes him a... Uh, Lynn works for the church as a administrator. Chipper works in sales. Okay, now, just, just pause for a minute. Now, is Lynn really a woman? She really is. <laughs> That's not a joke. That's for real, right? Is Chipper, okay, be careful on this one because, you know, we, okay, is Chipper really a man? Yes. yes. Listen to his voice. Say something, Chipper. <laughs> okay, right, right. If you want to treat sitting for the Chipper during worship because he's got like ultra bass voice. Okay. Is Lynn really black? Is Chipper really white? Really white. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is Lynn really a mother and a wife? And is Chipper really a husband and a father? And was there a time before that where Lynn was really a single woman? And was there a time before that when Chipper really was a single man? And God forbid, you know, could there come a day when Robert passes away and Lynn becomes a what? Widow. Or that Kinsley leaves, God forbid, and Chipper becomes what? Divorced. Like, are those things reality in this world? But fundamentally, when we look at these people, I think this is Paul's whole point. Fundamentally, we say, Lynn, have you trusted in the finished work of Christ? Yes. Chipper, have you trusted in the finished work of Christ? Then fundamentally, I do not see Black woman, mother, wife. Fundamentally, I do not see white man, husband, father. Fundamentally, I say, in Christ. In Christ. And sister, brother. That's where we start, friends. And I think that's what Paul is saying. We don't judge one another fundamentally on our external, secondary statuses. Paul says, in the church, here, there is no black and white, male or female, husband, single, married, rich, poor. Put them all in there. Here, those are all secondary categories. First and foremost of all, we are in Christ. He is all and he is in all. That changes everything. All right, thank you guys. Now, as the worship team comes, I want to just draw out a couple of implications of that. Look, I know some of you are struggling with where God has you right now. I know that's the reality. You look at your life and you're like, this stinks. This is not where I want to be. It's not ideal. And I am hurting. What am I supposed to do? Here's what I want to say so, so gently as I can. The Bible does not minimize your suffering. The Bible does not cast aside your hurt. But the Bible does say this, there is something greater than your hurt. You are in Christ. If you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus, you are in Christ. And no matter what else goes on in your life, 
the world can't fall apart because you are in Christ. Yes, life can stink. But ultimately, for those who have trusted in Jesus, there is a happy ending because you are in Christ. As broken as this world gets, as messed up as our hearts may be, you are in Christ, child of God. That is who you are. That is fundamentally who you are. And when you get up in the morning, God says, there's my child, clothed in the spotless righteousness of my son. And when you blow it for the one millionth time in the same way that you blew it yesterday, the God of heaven looks at you and said, there is my child clothed in the spotless work of Christ. And when you blow the big deal at work, and when you get in a fight with your spouse, or when you break up with that relationship that you thought was the one, you are in Christ. And that is what matters. Man, as many of you know, we, we just had a new addition to our family, uh, Lila. Lila is now five months old. And, and my kids, people would often come and ask my kids before the baby was born, what do you want, a boy or a girl? And then being the theolo theologically astute young people that they are, they would say things like, we just want whatever God wants to give us. You say that's a cop-out. Well, maybe. But it's also true. You know, and there was some little jockeying. The boys wanted boys. And some of the girls even wanted boys to even out the score, right? So we'd be 4-4. Four to four, Now we're 5-3. We're way out of balance. Is it a boy or a girl? Well, I remember that moment when, when Lila was born. Okay, and Trisha and I are in the hospital room. And for whatever reason, the, the way that Lila was born, we couldn't tell if she was a boy or girl right away. Like, it just the, the view was blocked, essentially. And she's born. And in that moment, you know what? I don't really care if she was a boy or girl. It, it was really, in some ways, super irrelevant. Because she was a mechanic. She was mine. She's my child. I don't care if you're a boy or a girl. I don't even care if you're healthy or sick in one sense. You're mine. And that's what God is saying to you. It don't really matter what your season of life is. It doesn't matter if you've been successful or a failure. It don't matter if your bank account has a lot of zeros or just one big fat one. You are in Christ. And that's how he identifies you. And that's how he wants you to think of yourself too. It doesn't matter so much what you do as how you do it. Do you leverage everything that you are to the glory of God? Say, Pastor Ryan, man, I'm with you. I, I want to believe that, but how do I do it? I, I don't even know how to start with that. I mean, I hear these voices and it's really tough for me. Let me give you two practical words of application. One is embrace your status fully. Listen, God has something for you in this season. And that's the reason you're not out of it. If you want to be married, you're not married right now because God has something for you in your singleness. If your relationship is struggling, God has something for you in that struggle. If you're in a dead-end job, God has you in that dead-end job because he has something for you right now in that dead-end job. If your career is flourishing, God has something for you in that flourishing. Don't waste your fill-in-the-blank. Don't waste your singleness. 
Don't waste your crummy job. Don't waste your studentness. That's not a word. Don't waste your retirement. Don't waste your sickness. God has something for you. Embrace it right now. Embrace where you are right now and say, God, where I'm at, I want to be the best I can be for your glory to make Jesus look great in the world. Second, rest. Rest in your status. Listen. Take it easy. God's not all bent out of shape about your career. You shouldn't either be. God's not that upset about where your relationship is right now. Just relax. Take it easy. Stop trying to move ahead so fast that you forget what God is doing in you right there in that present moment. You don't have to rush through life. Be present with the Lord where He has you. Embrace it fully, then rest where He's got you. Just relax. Because brothers and sisters, the main thing that matters is this. If you've trusted in the life that Jesus lived on your behalf and the death that He died for you and the resurrection that He gives you power in your life, then you're in Christ. And that is the most important thing about you. So rest. Let's stand together and worship the Lord. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you are in charge of where we're at in our life. Thank you that you are with us in our status. And thank you that you're not fundamentally concerned about where we're at, but how we use that for your glory. Would you help each one of us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.